Then if you'll take your Bibles, congregation, and turn this evening to a passage that begins with Revelation 20, verse 11. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,424. We'll be reading from Revelation 20, verse 11, and then into chapter 21 through verse 8. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also read what we receive as a faithful summary of the Word of God, Article 37 of our Belgian Confession, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 198. We come this evening uh, to the conclusion of our series uh, that deals with the Belgian Confession. Uh, we anticipate beginning a series through the Heidelberg Catechism uh, following the conclusion of this series. Uh, we read tonight from the Word of God beginning at Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And thus far for this evening, our reading from the word of God. We then turn to Article 37 of the Belgic Confession, which is entitled The Last Judgment, and it states there, Finally, we believe, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord has come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly, as he ascended, with great glory and majesty, to declare himself the judge of the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Then all human creatures will appear in person before that great judge, men, women, and children, 
who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. They will be summoned there by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the divine trumpet. For all those who died before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their own bodies in which they lived. And as for those who are still alive, they will not die like the others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from corruptible to incorruptible. Then the books, that is, the consciences, will be opened, and the dead will be judged, according to the things they did in the world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give account of all the idle words they have spoken, which the world regards as only playing games. And then the secrets and hypocrisies of men will be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. Therefore, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people, but it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences, and shall be made immortal, but only be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers, will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing, in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have said it before, but we say it again by way of introduction this evening, uh, many a person also within the Christian church, within the Reformed branch of the Christian church, seems to live a negative, pessimistic life. I want to be clear uh, from the outset that that should not be the case. Uh, Article 36, you will of course remember, has dealt with the civil magistrate, and sometimes uh, the perception of Reformed Christians grows even more pessimistic when they consider the civil magistrate. Our congregation, I want to be blunt again and say that should not be the case. No matter the circumstances, no matter the state of affairs in our lives, the Christian, especially the Reformed Christian, ought to be a man or a woman, a young man, a young woman, with a spirit of optimism. Not because of the times in which they live, we might say that our optimism would be in spite of the times in which we live, but because of the direction of our faith and because of the focus of our faith. And I find it so helpful that uh, our Belgic Confession ends where it ends. You might say with the eyes of faith gazing into the very heavens with a holy anticipation of the return of the glorious person of Jesus Christ, who even now is seated at the right hand of the Father ruling with his royal scepter over every single aspect of time, moving all things according to the eternal plan of the triune God towards the consummation. 
when we will hear the reverberations for all of eternity that all glory belongs to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, You'll notice also by way of introduction that Article 37 deals with many, many a glorious doctrine. Time is not afforded to us this evening, and it would take many evenings to consider all of the pearls of truth that are found in Article 37. So we acknowledge that tonight we will just summarize this glorious truth that is our hope, that is our comfort, and that ought to motivate us for the week that lies ahead, that ought to comfort us in the years that perhaps lie ahead. We want to consider this evening this theme, our belief concerning the end. Noticing, first of all, our belief concerning the end and historic consummation, and then secondly, our belief concerning the end and Christ's return, and then thirdly, our belief concerning the end and final judgment. So our belief, and of course, our belief is based upon the revelation of the Word of God. And just allow me to point out the the polar opposites between the Christian who lives by faith in the Word of God and their certain knowledge that they have, and the absolute futility and despair that the unbeliever has concerning the end. Because the person who rejects the revelation of God as found in His Word, what do they know concerning the end? But in contrast, the Christian who with the simplicity of faith receives the Word of God, they know some things with absolute certainty concerning the historic consummation, Christ's return, and the final judgment. So first of all, our belief concerning the end and historic consummation. We use that word historic purposefully, and it has a definition of a famous or important point in history, and indeed the consummation. And the word consummation means the end, but not in the end as if everything is over, not as the end as, say for example, uh, the football game is over and the clock reads zero and the score is there, but then everybody turns the lights off and goes home and says, well, wasn't that nice? Now, that's not the idea here of consummation, but rather the end in the sense of the culminating apex of all of history. We know as Christians something with finality and definiteness about the historic consummation. We know that it will occur at a set time, a time that is set by way of divine appointment. We know, or at least we ought to know, if our faith is healthy and vibrant and if it is feeding upon a consistent diet of the Word of God. We know that a date has been fixed in the eternal counsel of God when history will have been completely exhausted, when every event, every detail that had to take place to move us from Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created, to what John sees here in Revelation 21.1, the scene of the new heaven and the new earth. We know that there are an innumerable amounts of events, but we know that from all of eternity, the final date was fixed according to the sovereign providence of God. And we know that every event 
is happening just as it was divinely designed, even though we don't necessarily know why it had to be the way it is. By faith we know that every event is occurring according to the fulfillment of that divine design. I just simply want to remind you this evening that human history is not off the rails. And again, from our perspective, it may seem like it is. But human history is continuing down the rails that God has ordained. This set date is a hidden date. We want to be clear about this also. Uh, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows. Speaking of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And if you study church history, you know that many a false teacher has revealed the foolishness of his false teachings by making a prediction about specifically when the Lord Jesus Christ would return. And then when that date came, they quickly recalculated or re-explained themselves and made another foolish prediction. Once again, that was unrealized. And so you can know if, if a person ever stands in a position of leadership or teaching capacity and says, based upon some in-depth study that I've done, and it's usually from some obscure passage uh, in an Old Testament prophecy with all types of hermeneutical tricks and jumps and sleight-of-hand movements, if he ever says, I know that Jesus Christ is going to come back on such and such a date, you know you're dealing with a false teacher. Because no man knows the day nor the hour. Not the specific day, not the specific hour. But we know that there is a specific date and hour which is known only to the Father. There is a date set in the divine calendar when history will be concluded, when time will be no more, when all things will come to an end. Now, why hasn't God revealed when that day is? Boys and girls, my children are older now, but when they were younger and when the oldest, Faith, and the second oldest, Anna, they, they would babysit, and we would go away for uh, a while, me and my wife, and Faith and Anna always had a question for me or my wife when we left. And the question always was, when will you be home? And I would always respond, it doesn't matter when we're home. Make sure you've done what you're supposed to do. Now, sometimes I would be in charge of, of watching over the kids and dinner time and, and bath time and things like that. And I found myself asking my wife the same question. Well, when will you be home? I want to make sure that I at least try to feed the kids and have them in bed when they're supposed to be in bed. And the reason we wanted to know exactly when the supervising person was going to be home was so that we could delay. Delay doing our duties. And I would submit to you, congregation, this is exactly part of the reason why Christ has not revealed the specific day. We should not concern ourselves with trying to guess the day 
we should concern ourselves with being ready for the day. No man knows the hour. And that leads into the exhortation of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, verse 24. Therefore, you also be ready. And that's the exhortation that comes in pastoral love and concern to all who hear these words. You, be ready. Be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be ready for the conclusion of human history. Be ready for eternity itself. Be ready for the final judgment. Be ready to enter into the presence of Almighty God. And why should you be ready? For the Son of Man, the text continues, is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there is this belief in a historic consummation at a set time, but then also this historic consummation uh, will be about with a catastrophic act. And here again you see how how the Scriptures stand opposed to all of the futility and the vain imagines uh, of secular so-called experts. How will the world end? How will the world end? Well, the world will end with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But along with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be the catastrophic act of the burning of this old world. And if you want to cross-reference uh, to Second Peter 3, verses 10, you'll see that there is a revelation of something of the events that occur uh, with the conclusion of human history uh, and with this dramatic transformation uh, of this old world into the new world. And so Second Peter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, emphasizing its suddenness and its swiftness, in which the heavens as we know them now, the heavenly luminaries, etc., the, the stars, the moon, the sun, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now notice Peter, he makes these statements, but then he doesn't just step back at arm's length and speculate about well, how exactly will this occur? Well, what exactly will happen you know, to, the, to the trees and to the grass of the field? He makes this general statement that the end will come. And when the end comes, there will be a catastrophic change in all of the elements of the created realm and order. And then he gets right to the pastoral point. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just imagine for a moment the desperation and the futility of a person who sets all of their hopes for humanity upon populating Mars. When Mars is suddenly no more. Imagine if that is your hope for the survival of humanity. The population of Mars. When the angels break forth with that final trumpet sound and the heavens with a mighty noise are no more. Well, what hope then does the secular expert have? 
But the simple, faithful Christian who's not looking for the salvation of humanity through the repopulation of another heavenly luminary, but rather looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, what hope they have. And that hope is yours, Christian. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons should we be? Living lives of holy hope holy hope, knowing that there will be the end through a historic consummation. And this historic consummation, it all is bound up with what we want to consider in our second point, Christ's return. By Christ, of course, we refer to the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus being the name given to our mediator, indicating his work was the salvation of his people. Jesus, boys and girls, uh, you maybe learn this and you know this, Jesus just simply means the the Lord saves or the Lord will save. And in Matthew 1 verse 21, the angel tells uh, the parents, the earthly parents of uh, Jesus to, to name the child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's also given a title of Christ, which means that he is the anointed Savior, appointed and qualified to accomplish all of the work necessary for our full salvation. And history gives way to eternity with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the next grand event in the work of redemption. That is what we look forward to. That is the next thing, so to speak, on the radar of our hope. Christ's return. And so much could and should be said about this, but tonight we limit ourselves to seeking to emphasize that this return will be a glorious return and it will be a resurrecting return. So first of all, permit me to try to say something about the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There has never been an event that will be as glorious, as all-producing, as splendid as the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in part because of the events that will accompany His return. You know, we just had as you know, a wedding yesterday. And music plays while the grandparents are seated, and that's nice. And music is played while the parents are seated, and and, and that's nice. And music is played while the bridal party makes their way. But then you know that there's a transition in the music. And then there is that piece of music that is selected and played with the specific purpose for the bride to enter. Now, all of you, I suppose, if you were at a wedding, you'd be a little bit confounded if, if that piece of music was much more subdued. If the piece of music for the seating of the grandparents was much more glorious than the music for the entry of the bride. And so think of some of the events that will occur when Christ returns. The heavenly luminaries with a great noise will give way, and the angels will come forth with trumpets. And, and now, of course, angels are spiritual beings, so here again uh, we deal with mysteries. Uh, but the revelation is clear that there will be this most glorious pronouncement of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the the sky recedes like a scroll, 
but the glory of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is especially bound up in who it is that returns. And, and, and let us with one sweep of our hand do away with all of the folly of liberal theology that denies the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ because we believe on the authority of the Word of God that the return of Jesus Christ will be nothing less than His physical, personal return of His glorified, united, divine nature and human nature. And we would cross-reference here uh, Acts 1, verse 9 through 11, uh, the uh, ascension and a good step for the understanding of the return is found in an understanding of what took place in the ascension. And that's why we need to emphasize the understanding of the ascension, that it was a bodily ascension of the person of Jesus Christ. And you remember, of course, that Jesus Christ led His disciples out uh, to the Mount of Olives, and He blessed them. And as He was blessing them, uh, the text indicates in verse 9, He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And the disciples, understandably so, they looked, in verse 10, steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, instructive angels coming. And they asked, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This Jesus. This Jesus. The, the he of verses 9 and verses 10. This Jesus, who was incarnate, who suffered, who died, who was buried, who rose again from the dead, this same Jesus, whom you just saw physically and locally ascend from earth into heaven, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So what do we look for? Not just the social advancement of human society. Not just the next invention which promises to alleviate all of the sufferings of humanity. Our hope is bound up in the return of this Jesus. And I want to ask you this evening, is that your hope? How there are many legitimate things which we delight in, in earthly life. Many legitimate things which we hope in. But ultimately, if we were to ask you, what is your hope? Would you say this Jesus, the mediator, the Savior, the Redeemer, my God and my Lord. You see, congregation, that's the essence of Christian faith. Amidst all of the perplexities of life, this same Jesus will come. The trumpet will sound, the angels will burst forth, but especially as expressed in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And, and that glorious return will produce the most remarkable supernatural event 
that of the general resurrection of the dead. And, and by general here, we just simply refer to the fact that Scripture is clear that there is one future resurrection. We don't have the time to go into premillennialism and postmillennialism and etc., but I just know that Scripture is clear that there is one resurrection from the dead, not multiple resurrections, not a, a two- or three-tiered staged resurrection from the dead, but upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, holds the keys over death and over Hades. Christ has the power over the grave. And He holds the keys, and upon His return, figuratively speaking, He places the key into the graves of an innumerable multitude who have passed from this life through physical death. And with His sovereign hand of royal rule, He turns that key, and every single grave, the marked graves and the unmarked graves, will have to submit to the authority of Christ, and every person who has ever passed from life into death through physical death will be raised again from the dead. And now some may ask, how, how in the world could you believe such a truth? On the authority of Scripture. And only on the authority of Scripture. But as for me, and I hope this is true for you also, we don't need any other evidence than what we find for example, in Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. You can walk through a cemetery, and you can look headstone after headstone, name after name, date after date, and then you can also think of all of those whose mortal remains lie in an unmarked resting place, lost at sea, lost on a battlefield, lost in the wilderness, lost in the desert, lost to us, but not lost in the sense that God doesn't know where those mortal remains are. And upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the graves will have to open up. In passing, this is why we have Christian funerals. And I would encourage you, when you look upon a casket over a vault, over an empty grave, remind yourself that that grave will never have the last word. Think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, I know that I shall not be forgotten in the grave. I know that. Oh, many people may forget about me. The psalmist says, even my father and mother may forget about me, which we may say, how, how could that even be? And you can think of individuals and uh, human history uh, who have very celebrated lives, but time goes on and quickly the men and women of yesterday are forgotten by the inhabitants of today. And so it will be with us. First of all, not many of us are notable. Not many of us are well known. But even if we do have a certain amount 
uh, of influence in a community. Very quickly, individuals will forget about us. And that becomes even more true, perhaps, as you age. And as you face the prospect of your own grave. But see, the Christian who is focused upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ can anticipate their own grave and say, I know that I will not be forgotten in the grave. I know that Christ will return. And I know that he will have the keys of death and Hades. And I know that he will, figuratively speaking, put that key upon my grave. And that by his power, his resurrecting power, my soul will be reunited with my body and my body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. In science, it can spend all its time refuting this idea of our belief. But there will be no denying its reality upon the day of resurrection. For John 5, verse 28 and 29 speaks very clearly, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And that brings up the subject matter that we must deal with in our third point, the final judgment. First of all, a word about its reality. There will be a final judgment. Again, our text is very, very clear. Revelation 20, verse 12 and 13. I saw the dead, small and great, persons of significance, persons of insignificance. There they all are, gathered together, standing before God. Standing before God. In your own mind, read that phrase to yourself. Standing before God. And in that phrase... I saw the dead, small and great. That includes you. That includes me. Standing before God. And then what? Books were opened. The books of the consciences and the books of the book of life. And then look at the bottom of verse 13. And they were judged small and great, standing before God, and they were judged. Now, the nature of this judgment is not investigative. Uh, that's what courts do in our day. They seek to investigate. They seek to find the truth. They seek to determine through all sorts of reasoning and cross-examining and the evidence presentations of who is the guilty party or who is the innocent party will know very clearly because of the absolute sovereignty of God, because of His omniscience, God knows all things. This will not be any type of investigative final judgment. It's not investigative in nature, uh, but rather it is transparent to make known, to make publicly visible, to make universally acknowledgeable the righteousness of God as he deals with each person. And on that day of the final judgment, then there will be the full revelation that God is the judge and that he has done that which is right. 
And he will do that which is right in his judgment, in his definitive, formal, and forensic declaration. And just know that, that here on earth, when there is a, a, a lawsuit, when there is maybe a, a public lawsuit that claims the attention of many a person, after the judge has rendered his verdict, oftentimes then there's the analysis of the judgment, and then there's the uh, quibbling about whether or not the judge was right. There will be none of that on the final day. No one will have the opportunity to contest this divine judgment. Those who are sentenced to eternal life will not have the opportunity to make any plea, to make any appeal. There's no higher appeal court than the sovereign God. And so when this judgment comes, and when sinners who walked rebelliously in their sin, when they are sentenced righteously to eternal condemnation, then everyone will acknowledge the holiness and the righteousness of God in that act. And when you read Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and I remember the first time as a seminarian where I dealt with this passage in some depth. It was my grandfather's funeral, and I thought to myself, well, a funeral, a Christian funeral, maybe we should just stop reading at verse 7. Now, you could do that. But verses 1 through 8 are a unit. We can't stop at verse 7. Because verse 8 is also revealed truth. But the cowardly, emphasizing a lack of faith, the unbelieving, the abominable, and we just note that many things of gross immorality that fall underneath that category are today celebrated by our society. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. On the authority of the Word of God, I can guarantee you that that will take place. Now, I know that that's not politically correct, but it's pastorally correct to make that statement. But then also to remind you of the glorious truth in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, when there is this list of horrific sins, the Apostle Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to anyone who may hear these words, who is living a life, a habitual life of unbelief, of sexual immorality, of lying, I have to warn you that hell is real and the final judgment is coming. But I also have the wonderful opportunity to plead with you and to remind you that today is the day of grace. So today, if you hear His voice, that is the voice of Christ, commanding you to repent and to believe. Today, if you hear His voice, know that today it is still the day of grace. Today, you can still confess your sins. You can say, I realize that the Word of God is correct, and I realize that I'm living a life of sexual immorality, and maybe no one else knows it, 
God knows it. And on that final day, everyone will know it. But today, if you simply say, Son of David, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Today is the day of grace. But as a gospel minister, I cannot promise you that tomorrow will come. I cannot promise you that next Sunday will come. I cannot promise you that another sermon will come. Remember, no man knows the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. But today, today is still the day of salvation. And for those who find and have found salvation in and through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what a day it will be when the Lord Jesus Christ pleads our cause. Because sometimes you think, standing before God in the final judgment, the books are opened, an account is given for every idle word. How will that play out for me? In catechism class this morning, we had the wonderful opportunity of talking about double imputation about the act of obedience and the passive obedience of Christ. And for the Christian on that glorious day when you stand in the presence of God and when the judgment is made, in His legal, forensic judgment, God the Father will look upon you, Christian, and He'll see His Son's work. The Son's work of active obedience fulfilling the entirety of the law in your place. And the Son's passive obedience in taking the entirety of the guilt of your sin and dealing with it definitively upon the cross of Calvary. And God in His righteousness and His holiness will look upon the Christian and see that reality of the double imputation and God then looks upon us now and He will look upon us then. And because of Christ, see a person. And, and, and this congregation, if we really begin to understand this, this will move us to worship. This will move us to sacrifice the entirety of our being and the entirety of our lives into His service. That God looks upon me, and because of His grace and because of His mercy in Jesus Christ, sees someone who has never sinned and has kept the entirety of the law. Not that I did it, but because Christ did it for me. And by the Spirit's work, the Christian simply receives those benefits of Christ by faith. But a faith that in the midst of all of the dire circumstances that we may perhaps find ourselves in doesn't look first and foremost to kings, politicians, the changing of circumstances, the improvement of society, but looks with hope and anticipation to the glorious return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will come. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours, uh, the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ.
the hope of His return, His glorious return. Now, Father, we acknowledge that our time and words fail to even begin to plumb the depths of these beautiful truths. But we pray that our spiritual appetite might have been enticed by what we've considered this evening, and that in our own private thoughts and reflections and meditations and in further study of the Word of God, and in further occasions, uh, more might be said and more might be understood and more might be appreciated concerning these wonderful truths. Above all, we pray that our souls would be comforted, uh, that our minds, often tossed to and fro with anxieties, doubts, and fears, might be put at rest, that we may know that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.